turning and turning in the widening gyre, a falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst embrace the void. Good evening and remain indoors. Have you tried kill all the poor? You are not a Buddhist. You are in a cult. Suck it, Nietzsche. The wave returns to the ocean. Where it came from. And where it's supposed to be. Not bad, Buddhists. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 150 of Embrace the Void, where we have somehow done 149 episodes of this show. I am your host, Aaron, and in celebration of this big 150, this week I'm going to give you a different kind of ETV. I had originally thought that we could set aside episode 150 to thank all our patrons by name, because we've got some really hilarious patron names that aren't getting nearly enough love. Um, I may do that in the future at some point. However, I recently fell down a particularly interesting rabbit hole, um, and it eventually became clear that the best way I could thank you patrons is by reporting back on this rabbit hole that I had taken the time to fall down into thanks to your support. So today, we are going on an adventure. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. Today... I'm going to discuss an organization called Sovereign Nations, a group that I am ideologically strongly opposed to, and that seems to me to be a perfect case study in how certain liberal anti-SJW activists are laundering conservative arguments in a way that plays a pretty crucial role in the far-right ecosystem. I would have preferred that this be a dialogue rather than a monologue. Uh, Unfortunately, my attempts on multiple fronts to get a representative from sovereign nations on the show to discuss their work was unsuccessful. I tried everything from Twitter to old-fashioned calling and leaving voicemails. Um, I asked multiple people who've interacted positively with sovereign nations if they could put me in touch with Michael O'Fallon, the head of the organization who I will be referring to frequently throughout this episode. Uh, No luck. So this is going to be an extremely rare solo ETV episode. Um, And on the advice of Void Council, I'm going to stick pretty close to my script to avoid any risk of being sued. Uh, Sadly, this means there are going to be some blank spots in the argument uh, or the organization's coyness um, in describing their agenda makes it difficult to make a firm determination of their views. 
these would be spots where I would most wish that they would be willing to engage in a dialogue and answer questions. I believe um, enough can be inferred from the organization's publications and podcasts uh, and videos and such to say with reasonable confidence that they are a conservative Christian nationalist organization. Um, there is a more complicated question on what role whiteness plays in their agenda. Uh, I say this purely descriptively, right? Not as some sort of ad hominem, though I can understand why some would think less of people whom these terms would apply, uh, as they are generally harmful ideologies in the modern world. Now, you may wonder why I would take interest in this particular right-wing organization when there are so many others like it, and it's not particularly prominent. Um, and it is specifically their close work and their relationship with two of the grievance studies hoaxers um, that first brought them to my attention, um, and I believe makes them worth a closer look. So let me discuss first sovereign nations, and then we can discuss that connection. Um, so I'm going to begin by making a case that sovereign nations are a Christian nationalist organization. Um, then I'll consider what other views may be involved in their platform as well. Um, I want to start by reading directly from the About page on their website. The purpose of sovereign nations is best understood as a prolegomena to the formulation of a new and not just sentimental conservative and constitutional republic. Sovereign nations serves as an exploration of the intellectual viability of the conservative political habitat, with a view to establishing the groundwork for the construction and elaboration of a broader and more comprehensive vision for the movement in relation to the exegetical intent of our founders through our national founding documents. The essential precondition for a renewed conservative engagement with intellectual life is confidence in its own coherence and credibility. It is our hope to engage with the ideas and concepts that are at the center of progressivism and supranationalism without descending into ad hominem arguments. We would seek to be upfront with our disagreements, respect our philosophical and ideological opponents, and look forward to creating a common ground of open discussion. The last part is certainly a little amusing to me, given the silence I received when I reached out multiple times to try to engage with this group in dialogue. Um, I'm left with the impression that they are primarily interested in dialogue with folks on the left who share their criticisms of other parts of the left, um, not with folks who would necessarily earnestly challenge them on their Christian nationalism. But I'm always happy to have my mind changed about that. Uh, overall, I personally find this about page pretty vague. Um, interestingly, in the time I've been researching sovereign nations, they appear to have removed a paragraph from their about page, uh, though it can still be found on the Wayback Machine. So here is that removed paragraph that has, I think, a little bit more substance to it. So again, quoting, um, as can be seen over the past eight years, the goal of open society foundations is to demean and destroy the tenets of national conservatism and thus create a crisis of conscience within the mind of the conservative. In order to succeed, we must rebuild the confidence in the presuppositions of conservatism in all of its exercised forms, including in economics, civil liberties, family, 
sovereignty, theology, rule of law, and foreign affairs. What was once heresy is now law, and what was once law is now heresy. The issue for progressive open open society foundations is that their new law has no foundational presupposition. So there we can see the group appears to be heavily invested uh, in rolling back what they see as the progress of open society foundations. Uh, Groups, this is the term they use that refers to groups that seek to break down nationalism in favor of globalism. Um, On this front, they are especially interested in George Soros who shows up frequently in their articles and podcasts as a significant threat to what they see as traditional Western society. They even have a whole section of their website called Open Societies, where they spend a great deal of energy attacking Soros, immigration, and more recently the World Health Organization. So, as with any conservative group, I think it is good to ask, what is it they are interested in conserving? In this case, the key things appear to be nationalism, Christianity, and possibly also whiteness, uh, which they see as under threat from globalism, Marxism, and intersectionality. Um, From the paragraph they have recently chosen to remove, it seems plausible to infer that they are interested in a nationalist framework founded on Christian theology and in defiance of multiculturalism. I think it's slightly more of an open question how much that involves conserving whiteness in their minds, but I will discuss that. Looking first at the at the Christian conservatism part, right? In an article they published, Sovereign Nations published, December 11, 2018, titled, Christians Must Be Conservative and Conservatives Must Be Christians, author P. Andrew Sandlin argues that our legislation, quote, must be an application of God's moral law. The article goes on to deny that there are uh, that they are interested in setting up a theocracy, but the argument seems to be a play on words more than a rejection of basing our laws and religious principles, as it is quickly followed by restating the view that it is God's desire that godly people lead politics. Uh, the other concludes by the sorry the, the story concludes by reiterating that the constitution rests on christian foundations and if we abandon christian constitutionalism then anti-christians will alter the constitution to their own nefarious ends the persecution of christians is a common theme for sovereign nations and they use it equally to attack things like the current Chinese government and social justice groups here at home. Uh, It comes up a lot in their material on COVID-19, especially the closing of churches. Um, Sovereign Nations President Michael O'Fallon has repeatedly suggested that the lockdown is meant as a way to keep Christians from church as part of a broader conspiracy to destroy things like Christianity. Uh, He retweeted James White saying, not having church yesterday was not a violation of Hebrew 10. Having church yesterday was not a violation of the Sixth Commandment. The totalitarians are at our door and we are inside gouging each other's eyes out. 
far as I can tell, O'Fallon genuinely see, uh, sees keeping people from attending church as a form of religious persecution rather than an earnest attempt to save their lives. This strikes me as deeply conspiratorial thinking that comes through in tweets like, again, quote, it appears that many Christians are completely satisfied existing in a perpetual occupied state of vichy Christianity. The idea that attempts to save people's lives are equivalent to Nazi Nazi occupation seems like harmful hyperbole to me. These complaints about lockdown are part of a larger skeptical view of the coronavirus situation that seems to get pretty far into conspiracy theory territory. Right. This side of things seems heavily driven in O'Fallon's thinking by uh, the nationalist anti-globalist side of the sovereign nation's agenda. Uh, O'Fallon claims, for example, the new dogmatic is that our chief aim is to obey the virus and to give glory to the experts. Yet it is those experts that have been consistently incorrect. As an important side note, O'Fallon beats the anti-expert drum hard and often. He tweets, for example, experts or technocrats play governmental institutions as well as gigantic faith-based coalitions. Former this or former that, and the myriad of fractured identities that our experts experts populate our conferences where we must shut up and listen to the experts. Now, these attacks on experts might seem odd, given O'Fallon's professed love of objectivity uh, and other statements he's made, such as, this is him quoting, rule number two, Never embrace as infallible the opinion of your fan base. Leave room for those that have experience, that know the terrain and battlefield, and that have the best interests of the cause that you are fighting for in mind. That sure sounds a lot like listen to experts to me. Um, of course, obviously the view is not all experts are bad, right? Uh, in an article on the site on Sovereign Nations entitled, Political Correctness is a Virus That Kills Too, the author talks glowingly about how Trump has relied on medical experts in trying to address the crisis. The article even cites Dr. Fauci himself, a frequent target of criticism on the same site. No clarity is given on which experts to rely on and when. The impression one has is that, the, is that this is the standard experts are good when they support my view, and they're part of the vast conspiracy to oppress us when they don't. Uh, what's more, Sovereign Nation's Twitter account shared that article with the comment, We may be hungry, broke, and sitting ducks for criminals, but don't you dare call us xenophobic. How deep does the anti-globalist COVID-19 conspiracy rabbit hole go here? Well, O'Fallon tweets out questions like this. So... Why is software developer and predatory NGO director Bill Gates allowed to have his information shared far and wide without any censorship, but qualified medical doctors treating patients with COVID-19 that have different opinions than Gates are censored on Facebook and YouTube? For those not familiar, Gates has been taken up, Bill Gates has been taken up as a evil globalist mastermind who they claim is using the virus as a method to control us and as a crisis to drive his desire to do things like 
put tracking chips in everyone and reduce the overall global population. Um, I would very much like to have O'Fallon on the show, if for nothing else, and to ask him how much he believes about these conspiracies about things like Bill Gates. Um, for folks who are interested in learning more about those kinds of conspiracies, I highly recommend the work being done by folks like Merseyside Skeptics on tracking um, how people are uh, connecting these dots. Um, okay. Other quotes of interest on this front from O'Fallon include the fairly just asking questions quote, uh, if lockdowns and masks work, then why did we empty our prisons? And... Um, it is interesting that Anthony Fauci, same Dr. Fauci, said a very casual, non-interventional tone, even stating that coronavirus was not contagious in an asymptomatic state, and now has transitioned to full-on Andromeda strain on today's Sunday Newspeak shows. Seems odd. He also retweeted a tweet about China's lab in Wuhan with the comment, the cause of things, right? A play on the name of Sovereign Nations podcast and a reference to the conspiracy theory that the virus was developed in or escaped from a Chinese lab. O'Fallon actually retweeted Tom Cotton's now famous interview where Cotton also dipped into the Wuhan lab conspiracy theory well. So, O'Fallon repeatedly suggests that the current crisis will be used to justify a dangerous global government and further leftist overreach. He posts many things skeptical that the crisis is as severe as experts claim. For example, and stick with me on this one because if you're not deep in the Twitter weeds, this may get a little silly, but... O'Fallon retweeted Paul Joseph Watson, who is, for the folks not familiar, a right-wing shit poster of the highest caliber. Um, and he posted a retweet of Watson complaining that Twitter was removing tweets by openly fascist Brazilian President Bolsonaro. These tweets were critical of the COVID shutdown. Uh, the tweets in question involve Bolsonaro wading into crowds and hyping hydroxychloroquine as a cure. Which makes sense since O'Fallon is himself a big proponent of hydroxychloroquine, possibly on political conspiracy theory grounds alone. He quotes Candace Owens saying... From the first utterance of hydroxychloroquine as a potential treatment for coronavirus, our media and Democrats have been in hysterical overdrive, trying to discourage the sick from trying it. That's indication enough for me that I ought to secure it for my medicine cabinet. As O'Fallon himself puts it in his own words, when the World Health Organization, the WHO, suspends testing of hydroxychloroquine over, quote-unquote, scare quotes, safety concerns, then you can have confidence that it is likely that hydroxychloroquine is probably the most reliable treatment for COVID-19. He's clearly stating he believes the World Health Organization would suppress a viable treatment for covid I don't know how to see that as anything other than a conspiracy theory, and an especially dangerous one at that, especially given that the FDA has reiterated that hydroxychloroquine is not a proper treatment for COVID. <sighs> O'Fallon is well aware that these are views many would see as harmful conspiracy theories. He actually retweets 
Paul Maxwell, who says, quote, conspiracy theory cannot become a synonym for a theory I don't like. Nothing wrong with conspiracy theories. People in power conspire with one another, sometimes for the public good, some for selfish gain. If you decry conspiracy theories, you're not a thinking person. O'Fallon also relies on a quote from Stephen Wolfe, saying, The use of the conspiracy theory accusation is an elite rhetorical tool to maintain the delusion that the elite's public views match their private ones, and that their public views are not products of private scheming and careful deliberation. In my opinion, it's hard to read many of these tweets as anything other than conspiracy-minded. And look, I've got, I've got plenty more. Consider the following, quote, Anyone who has written for or contributed to the ultra-progressive, SJ-minded, Marxist ideology-supporting religious new service should at least be questioned for their discernment. Either they are not naive beyond repair or are not what they claim to be. That's O'Fallon in reference to what he considers to be lefty Christian organizations and organizers um, who come up frequently in this discussion, as we will see. Um, O'Fallon also retweeted the following claim. Again, the words here are unambiguous. Quote, The deep state has put up with us long enough. They are taking their power back, and this virus gave them the opportunity to do it. O'Fallon adds the simple comment, bingo. Hard not to read that as endorsing conspiracy theories, but understandable that this is confusing territory when our president pushes the same conspiracy theories on a daily basis. O'Fallon's claims about how wide the conspiracy goes get pretty funny at some points. He actually repeatedly claims that the Drudge Report is on uh, the progressive agenda. Less amusing is how frequently he speaks of the darkness that is coming. For example, quote, apparently, well-intentioned people still do not understand what is coming. We may have a small window to stop the great darkness from happening, but we will need to be unified against those that are pushing the deconstructive, metaphysical, subjective narrative. Also far less funny when he claims, as he does in his podcast, that basic social distancing guidelines are part of this conspiracy to reset us all into a social justice cult. This goes, in my opinion, beyond in-group signaling and puts lives at risk. Just one more retweet and then I'll move on. Quote, Gosh, Kind of funny how the virus comes along from China, and the only reasonable way to be safe and address the problems created by this virus is to become a communist nation. Funny how life works out sometimes, isn't it? These conspiracy theories, while often demonstrably false and harmful, do appear to be in service to the nationalist part of sovereign nations. Another main issue that seems to come up on the nationalist side of their agenda is immigration, and the language there is no less extreme or conspiratorial. For example, O'Fallon frequently retweets individuals like Nigel Farage, who many consider a white nationalist, especially after the Brexit campaign, adding comments like, if uh, So this is uh, a comment in response to one of Nigel Farage's video about immigrants getting into the UK. 
if you aren't aware of what is happening in the UK, now might be a time to start paying attention. This is the construction of an intersectional nation for the purposes of diversity, inclusion, and equity, which will soon be legislative. <laughs> diversity frequently comes up as a stalking horse, uh, which is not uncommon in the anti-SJW world. Um, and here is, of course, where race enters into the picture in interesting and maybe confusing ways. Uh, considering the Consider the following tweet from O'Fallon. If a person, sovereignly elected by the Lord, has grasped the meaning of God's grace in his heart and mind, he will not promote or preach pseudo-social justice associated with D.I.E., diversity, inclusion, and equity. So this brings me to the question whether white should be added to the Christian nationalism when describing sovereign nations. And like I've said here, the story is more complicated, though some folks who I've conferred with in doing this research believe that I am being way too generous here um, and that it is not an uncomplicated story. That said, I want to tread very carefully so that I'm not just accused of calling my intellectual opponents white nationalists. Um, so the group makes, as far as I can find, no explicit claim about things like preserving a white majority. Now, this may suggest a potential deference to PC culture, and I would love to ask O'Fallon about that. Um, but that said, a case can be made that the group and O'Fallon himself are substantially concerned with issues of race and specifically the defense of white people against recrimination and the looming threat of diversity and multiculturalism. Uh, so, for example, um, early on in O'Fallon's tweeting career, uh, he retweeted without comment uh, a tweet showing a video of people of color dumping trash into the ocean with the quote, I wonder how all that plastic actually gets into the sea. He has also repeatedly raised doubts that the killing of Ahmad Aubrey is in any way involves racism. Um, he has retweeted without comment the following joke, I guess we could say, uh, quote, guys alert. I just bought a house in a predominantly white neighborhood on Friday. I knew it was risky, but was determined to find a place for my family to live. Today, my thermostat stopped working. True story. And now I knew it was racial sabotage. My kind's not welcome. O'Fallon also tweeted an article about the mayor of Baltimore imploring residents to stop gang activities during the lockdown with the statement, quote, not satire. Um, I find it fascinating how much he enjoys uh, what read on the surface as underdeveloped jabs at people of color. That's just how those things in my opinion, read. Um, over on Sovereign Nation's site itself, a search for white gets you pretty much the articles you'd expect. Uh, titles include uh, America Wasn't Founded on White Supremacy, White Fragility Theory is a Bullying Rhetorical Tactic, Is the Typical Mass Shooter a White Male? Question mark. Feminists Blind Spot, The Abuse of Women by Non-White Men, Particularly Muslims. White privilege has become a religion, complete with church ladies, the strange case of white supremacy, and the classic, the white slaves of Barbary. 
I think it is fair to say defending white people from social justice criticism is a pretty important part of Sovereign Nations programming. Uh, the cover article on their site, for example, as I was writing this, is entitled, Does Systemic Racism Exist? And of course, the article claims that it doesn't. Um, in none of these articles will you find anything more than basic lip service to the reasonable arguments on the opposing sides. Uh, there is not at any point, it seems like, an attempt to really grapple with uh, the opposing views on any of these positions. Um, of course, Right. Much of this can potentially be explained as culture war signaling rather than any actual desire to protect whiteness or white majorities. Um, Take O'Fallon's attempt at humor here where he tweeted, um, I do want to add that if the NFL is demanding diversity in managerial positions, we should demand diversity, inclusion and equity in every on-field position. No racism, ageism, xenophobia, or genderphobia will be accepted. I demand to see a female Asian offensive lineman. Pretty standard so anti-SJW posturing. Uh, the same could probably be said for Sovereign Nation joining in on the attacks of the 1619 Project, um, including an article rejecting the notion, like I said, that America was founded on white supremacy. Um, there are also... The frequent dropping of critiques of multiculturalism and the pushing of diversity and multiculturalism leading to a global uniculture, uh, a multiculturalism that O'Fallon repeatedly suggests in various materials will have to be propped up by globalist money because it's not appealing to the, the communities themselves. Um, again, on the white front, I would say they never get beyond the dog whistles, but there do appear in my ear to be a lot of dog whistles. Um, I won't deny that O'Fallon appears to be friends with various conservative people of color, and he also frequently mentions that his wife is Chinese. For all I know, he may have tons of liberal friends of color, too. He also frequently cites Alan Keyes and Thomas Sowell, uh, for example, quoting Sowell's claim that racism, quote, racism is a result, not a cause of slavery. That alone, though, doesn't settle the question of sovereign nations and whiteness one way or the other. Um, as folks have pointed out in other contexts, the well-known black conservative representative Alan West acknowledges that he used to actually be a member of a legit white nationalist biker gang. Uh, moreover, citing folks like Keyes and Sowell, while favoring white nationalism would, at least in principle— be no different than citing someone like Peter Bogosian while ultimately making a case for Christian nationalism, something that sovereign nations does frequently. This fact, it seems to me, just conveys a willingness by this group to treat those folks as a means to an end. So, I should very much like to ask O'Fallon if he believes it's important, for example, that America remain a majority white country, and what role he sees race playing in his conservative prolegomenon. Um, my guess is that he would reject the title of white nationalism, and might even quibble over the title of Christian nationalism, but I suspect he would also express concerns about open society Soros groups pushing multiculturalism and immigration in a way that he sees as harmful to America and other Western countries. 
While we're on the subject, I'm also curious to hear his thoughts on authoritarian leaders shutting down critical studies departments. Um, I would hope he would find that to be bad for more than tactical reasons. And I would also be curious to hear more about comments that he makes, like the one where he retweeted, uh, my God, what are we doing to ourselves? We are destroying Western civilization. Given how often destroying Western civilization is a stand-in for certain demographic anxieties as well as political concerns. In the absence of responses to these questions, I will say that it is my opinion that sovereign nations qualifies as a Christian nationalist group, but there isn't enough information to fully address the white nationalist question, and so I will stick to referring to them as a Christian nationalist group. I should add that, for me personally, there is no moral daylight between a Christian nationalist group and a white nationalist group. The fact that they seem to exist in different moral categories in many people's minds seems odd to me, given the massive amount of harm that both things have and continue to produce. I would have substantial ethical concerns collaborating with either kind of group and would need to be convinced there was a massive consequentialist payoff to even consider doing so. I see no such payoff in collaborating with a group like sovereign nations to attack social justice. Which brings me, right, to why I started down the sovereign nation rabbit hole in the first place, which is their substantial collaborations with the grievance studies folks, especially James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian. I think it is hard actually to overstate the significance that the grievance studies folks and the work they're doing plays in shaping O'Fallon and sovereign nations' expressions of their worldviews. For example, O'Fallon's very first tweet appears to be a retweet of James Lindsay sharing the first video that O'Fallon, James Lindsay, and Peter Bogosian recorded together entitled, quote, The Trojan Horse, that Lindsay and Bogosian did laying out the threat to social justice. Um, that tweet was then followed quickly by a tweet promoting sovereign nations speaking truth to social justice conference, the conference that has been referenced on this show before, uh, and that was headlined by all three of the Grievance Studies authors. Um, if you listen to my discussion with Reed Nice Wonder, this is the conference that we were referring to and the one that Reed said was about 90% white and 80% male. Uh, you can find a live tweeting of the talks by the Grievance Studies folks written by Godless Spellchecker in, I can link that in the show notes. It's all, you know, the, the text is for the most part standard Grievance Studies fare pitched, in my opinion, somewhat consciously to play up the we'll talk to anyone aspect given the differences that they may have with their hosts. Uh, there is plenty of discussion in the talks of racist microaggressions and how not all men are sexist. Um, there is also, importantly, a lot of doom and gloom where James Lindsay apparently uses disaster movie metaphors like outbreak to explain the threat of social justice ideology. I believe this is important because I think these folks often present a moving target of how dangerous the threat of social justice is. But when they're talking to conservative Christians who also see progressivism as the death of Western society, they're happy to play up that risk. The collaboration between these folks continues beyond the conference. Lindsay and Bogosian sat down, like I said, with O'Fallon for 
three each an hour and a half long talks on the dangers of social justice. The series entitled Trojan Horse. Uh, and they're mostly basically the same standard shtick in that kind of shareable format. Um, and O'Fallon references them constantly. He likes to refer to them as their infamous, um, you know, rooftop conversation, I think, or something along those lines. Um, what I've seen, right, what I saw in these many hours that I watched of these videos was no attempt at serious pushback, no consideration of substantial objections, um, and no critique of sovereign nations worldview as an acceptable alternative to social justice. Um, here is my actual critique of the content of those videos. Um, like I say, there's no attempt at steel-bodying the critical studies positions, um, no attempt to point to where they may actually get anything right. Instead, everything is taken to the worst possible extreme. And then it's pretty much said in a kind of scoffing voice uh, that is literally, that it, uh, which gives the impression that this is literally the only way to interpret this material. It is, for the most part, such a disingenuous read that it makes it extremely difficult to pull out the parts of, and this is a broader concern I have, pull out the parts of the critique that actually have some plausibility to them because they are then immediately cranked up to the most implausible place. Um, it really does seem to me that the way forward, and this is you know getting a little ahead, it really does feel to me that the way forward for the world is going to involve integrating sophisticated versions of these critical studies ideas and the impression the video gives is that instead we should characterize them as negatively as possible and hope that they go away that to essentially to wage holy war against the social justice views um, which seems remarkably like what they're accusing their detractors of doing Instead, what we get is, you know, Lindsay and Bogosian constantly point to the abuse that social justice folks heap on anyone who steps out of line ideologically as proof that this is a dangerous fundamentalist religion. Now, if that's the criteria, as we'll see, it seems likely that their community is also at risk of that same accusation. The threat to society is then constantly stoked by claims about how, how wide this problem has gotten which results in anything that even remotely fits into a narrative of cancel culture or social justice run amok gets viewed as part of this homogenous picture with no attempt to account for the important nuances in a variety of these specific cases. I would very much like to hear what these individuals think, for example, about the recent ruling by the Supreme Court regarding the phrase on the basis of sex. Is that ruling an example of social justice run amok? Uh, I find the inability to distinguish between, you know, genuine successful implementation of social justice and social justice run amok to be a persistent weak point in these critiques. Now, the convergence of O'Fallon's, uh, Lindsay's, and Bogosian's views is that they all think that we're going to be forced into a choice between the cult of social justice or some other religion. James and Peter in principle don't want that because they want things to stay secular, but their behavior is unfortunately contributing to the problem, it seems. O'Fallon is clearly much more on board with this happening in the sense that he wants open conflict because it seems in, in order to build the case for Christian nationalism. Um, I personally continue to try to resist the urge to catastrophize the situation. 
even listening to their uncharitable doom and gloom, and to hope that there is really a synthesis option that will incorporate the insights of critical studies alongside a variety of other valuable traditions in a way that addresses the concerns that people have of these views. One other thing I'll say that amuses me from these videos, there's at one point in which Lindsay says he is no longer the angry atheist he used to be. And I think that's kind of misleading. Uh, I think he's still the angry atheist he always was. It's just that he's found a new religion to attack. Lindsay, when I look at his stuff, it reminds me of, to use a, re a religious reference, Saul who became Paul. Before his conversion on the road to Damascus, Saul, as I understand it, was a bully against Christianity. After his conversion on the road to Damascus, Paul was a bully for Christianity. I remember seeing on the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral that there's an image of Paul burning the religious texts of other faiths after he converted. That's basically what I see when I see James in critical studies. Beyond these three lengthy videos, again titled The Trojan Horse Series, which seems like a deeply conspiratorial way to describe your opponent's views, Lindsay has also been a guest of O'Fallon's to discuss health equity, providing further fuel for O'Fallon's conspiracies about the current health crisis. In episode one of O'Fallon's Alchemy Symposium series, where alchemy is again another reference to George Soros, who he claims is using alchemy to try to change the world, a metaphorical version of alchemy to try to change the world, um, in this video, which was released on May 13th, 2020, Again, in the middle of a global pandemic, Lindsay paints a picture of equity as a code word for depriving white people of equal access to health care. At no point in this conspiracy-riddled hour and a half does Lindsay challenge O'Fallon on any of the cons COVID conspiracy material I've discussed here. The episode itself is literally about the pandemic and how it's being used for a social justice takeover. To me, this constitutes a deep level of involvement in a harmful conspiracy theory. The politicizing of this pandemic is costing lives right now, and all Lindsay can do is scoff at talk of racial inequality, despite there being ample evidence that COVID is disproportionately harming people of color. Perhaps Lindsay can plead ignorance, but in my opinion, it takes a willful level of ignorance to collaborate this much with someone on something like this while doing zero research into their views on the subject. But if Lindsay somehow does hear this criticism and actually wants to express criticism of O'Fallon's conspiracy theories publicly, I would very much welcome that. Now, to anyone with passing familiarity in this domain of the culture war, it will be obvious at this point that O'Fallon's language is heavily influenced by Lindsay and Bogosian. Consider this tweet from O'Fallon where he critiques progressive Christians. The, vera uh, the veracity deafness of many SBC, that's um, uh, Baptist organization, elites woke progressive deconstructionist statements over J.D. Greer's term in leadership causes great grief to many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are dedicated to the correspondence theory of truth. <laughs> now, that's funny because, for folks who aren't familiar, Lindsay and Bogosian created an amusing dust-up on Twitter around the time of that um, 
claiming that the critical studies wars really come down to those who believe in the correspondence theory of truth versus those who don't. We covered this particular dust-up back in our episode with Liam Bright, for folks who want a refresher. Um, that direct reference to correspondence theory, combined with all the other buzzwords, I think makes clear that O'Fallon is picking up newly laundered ideas and language directly from Lindsay and Bogosian and using them in a way they explicitly approve of, given their collaboration. For example, see also other tweets, uh, quote, gospel coalition may be completely reformed in a biblical fashion, rejecting all influence of postmodernism, social justice oriented, liberation theology fueled progressive political goals. O'Fallon sees these social justice Christians as capitulating with secular powers. He tweets for, or he retweeted, for example, the statement, um, What's even scarier than a virus is the fact that many Americans would be perfectly fine living under indefinite quarantine, so long as they got a monthly check from the government. And he retweeted this with the comment, but according to the Gospel Coalition crowd, this would be loving your neighbor. There you can really see, I think, a beautiful mix of the globalist spheres uh, and the belief that social justice is a good tool for controlling Christian conservatives. Um, now, I referenced liberation theology in one of those quotes. Liberation theology is actually another frequent target for criticism, which brings us back to the muddy question of what race's role is in all of this, as liberation theology has traditionally been a theology that arose from civil rights movements in non-white communities. O'Fallon says, for example, quote, don't keep on insisting that the SBC needs to sustain a denominational direction that is clearly promoting deconstructive social justice, liberation theology, and progressive politics, and claim that you are for unity when you really aren't. For folks who don't spend a lot of time on Twitter, Lindsay and Bogosian often claim that the fight between critical studies and them centers on this rejection of objective truth in favor of the critical view of the world. Uh, there is something in some ways to that philosophically. Um, and we've talked about in many episodes, uh, views on truth and knowledge for postmodernists. The problem is they give a deeply uncharitable reading of the critical studies arguments. And O'Fallon, of course, loves this simplified idea as it allows him to continue with a modified version of a classic theistic argument, which is, my intellectual enemies can't have objective morality, an argument that theists have used against atheists since way back and that has, I think, driven many atheists to think that they, in fact, can't have an objective morality. Another thing that I've argued against repeatedly in my on, on this show and in other places, um, the group's language uh, Sovereign Nation's language is constantly filled with accusations that neo-Marxist, postmodernist, pseudo-intersectionality globalists are raining down moral subjectivism through legislation that allows for mass genocide of unborn. Now, the irony here is that I think a lot of the folks they are against are by and large not radical subjectivists. Because radical subjectivists of the sort they have in mind wouldn't be making so much substantive claims about social injustice or attempting to enforce social progress. Uh, it just wouldn't make a lot of sense on that metaphysical view. Again, with deference to my friends, the anti-realists who want to construct objective frameworks. Um, 
I think for the most part, a lot of these people out in the streets are naive moral realists who think there are moral facts about how you need to treat people. The only reason to do so would be to exercise power uh, and control for its own sake, which is something that humans do for sure, uh, but does not appear to be the justification of individuals who genuinely seem to believe they are making the world a better place. Accusations to the contrary seem to be mere accusations of false motives, and grievance studies folks, for the most part, have repeatedly said they do not question the motives of their opponents because they see them as effectively fanatical members of a cult. Which brings me to the discussion of social justice as a religion slash cult. O'Fallon has, of course, taken up James et al.'s in vogue talking point that critical studies is a religion, though, of course, he's willing to use the much stronger term cult because, you know, he sees it as just a dangerous upstart new religion as compared to his true religion. Um, Now, I think it is better that these folks do just call it a cult if that's what they really think, because it seems like that's what they're aiming for when they critique it. Unfortunately, when I've pressed some of them on this, they will fall back to claiming it is merely a neutral analysis of critical studies as a religion. I find this Mott and Bailey endlessly frustrating, uh, and it's harmful to the discussions, to discussing these issues constructively. For folks who want to hear this sort of social justice is a religion argument and where it is going, listen to O'Fallon's most recent podcast on the trans civilizational cult. There he argues that, as I said, social distancing is the pandemic and the pandemic is part of a larger social justice strategy to indoctrinate the entire country into the cult that Lindsay and others are endlessly banging on about. Once you start down that conspiracy path, it seems to me that everything gets sucked into it. Folks who, like me, can stand to listen to be reasonable will be familiar with this phenomenon and know what I'm talking about. Now, On a positive note, when I posted that O'Fallon podcast on Twitter and asked other anti-SJW folks who follow me what they thought of it, they roundly rejected it as absurd conspiracy theorizing, and I found that deeply comforting. Um, What I want is that those folks to understand, as I'm struggling to see daylight between that podcast conspiracy theory narrative and the stuff that James Lindsay is spinning over on New Discourses. These seem to me to be working hand in glove. One final point on the social justice as a cult argument. As I said earlier, on any of the various definitions of religion or cult that I've seen thrown around in attempts to substantiate this claim, you have to see that the anti-social justice warrior community clearly also counts as a cult. Both generally speaking, and generally speaking, I think, is a more harmful one in a variety of ways, because it really does tend to radicalize young white males in a way that can make engagement much more difficult by priming these individuals to look out for being tricked. And so to always listen uh, in the least charitable way possible, when a mix of a charitable and critical analysis is generally a much more functional way to engage. This is not an I'm rubber, your glue response. This is a critique of an analysis that seems, in my opinion, to cut down all ideologies and communities and presents no special problem for social justice. There are absolutely valid criticisms of social justice and critical studies, 
We've covered several of them on this show. But putting that under a totalizing narrative of fanatical cult obscures the criticisms rather than clarifies them and generally makes engagement impossible. To summarize, my goal in all of this is not guilt by association. If the grievance studies folks from merely private friends with O'Fallon, I couldn't care less. Where I think it becomes worthwhile to criticize their behavior, along with his, is when they engage in substantial propaganda efforts that aid the projects of a deeply illiberal group. By laundering these ideas for conservatism, these folks give sovereign nations cover to say, we have liberals as our fellow travelers. By providing much of the philosophical language for the group's attacks on social justice, they give it an air of bipartisan legitimacy as well as academic rigor that will absolutely be turned against their own liberal ideas when those come into conflict with the Christian nationalist agenda. Maybe it's also the case that they that that the critical studies folks are or the, the the grievance studies folks are critical of this group's ideology when it diverges from their own. But honestly, I've yet to see or hear that anywhere in the hours and hours of materials I researched, which makes it pretty unlikely that their followers would ever see it either, leaving those followers with the impression that they were more sympathetic to these sorts of illiberal religious folks than to the social justice folks they constantly criticize for a liberalism. Maybe they can say it's just an arrangement of mutual convenience and that they are pulling these Christian nationalists towards their view, but it's hard to see how that's plausible without giving at least some pushback against the view. Speaking for myself, if a Christian nationalist group wanted to host me to discuss my favorite hobby horse moral realism and how anti-realists are terrible, and I did Uh, and I even did consider accepting, I would make it contingent on their also being willing to engage with me publicly on points where we strongly disagree, such as why religious moral realism is worse than secular moral realism. In the absence of that, I would personally feel that I was being used to contribute to a substantially harmful cause, a cause that involves opposing rights to gay people, women, and transgender individuals. I don't think it's enough to say, well, you know, whatever, Lindsay and Bogosian have been avid atheists, so they don't need to actually challenge this group specifically, any more than I would think it acceptable if I were to say, look, I have a long history of being against white nationalism, so there's no reason to criticize for me to criticize Stormfront while I'm collaborating with Stormfront on moral realism. Now, how do I think people should respond to all of this? I don't know exactly. My very short life spent studying ethics has not made, and, and generally speaking, not being very bright, um, has made me unsure of how to proceed in complex moral situations like this. There are a lot of legitimate, irreducible, competing ethical factors in play. As a wise person once said, there's a lot of ins and a lot of outs and a lot of what have yous. Now that said, in my opinion, Conspiracy theories about pandemics and globalist takeovers fall into the demonstrably false and substantially harm category that it seems to me like should receive substantial criticism and make for plausible candidates for deplatforming. Though I realize that it's currently difficult with a conspiracy theorist president spreading the same demonstrably false and harmful information on Twitter. But I think Alex Jones is it's right that he be removed from Twitter. And I can think that uh, individuals who share those similar kinds of conspiracy minded views when they start to actually 
threaten people's well-being and quality of life should face similar challenges. Um, now, Christian nationalism is also substantially harmful, but I think does not seem to me to be the kind of demonstrably false ethical, uh, sorry, sorry, demonstrably false empirical claims that I feel comfortable seeing deplatformed. They resist. They rest in a kind of uh, now those those positions often do rest on conspiracy theories about secular enemies aiming to destroy religious groups, but unfortunately, I think a lot of that falls into a gray area of permissibility. Um, O'Fallon does beat this drum constantly, promoting the least charitable version of critical studies as the only possible version and then weaponizing it. Um, in my opinion, this is very harmful to the discourse. Um, I do think it's interesting to ponder if we really should have different perspectives about Christian nationalism versus white nationalism, especially from the consequentialist liberal perspective, as they are, it seems like, ethically equivalent on that front, whatever you think about their other valences. I think it's harmful that all of these folks talk about the death of Western civilization without any attempt to unpack the problems with that idea, um, and that it is very difficult to give a coherent account of Western civilization, um, and that doesn't slip into a historic and generally classically racist narrative. Um, any theory, I think, that can't acknowledge that many of our accounts of history, insofar as they were written by the victors, were written by white people, is trying too hard to make the case that racism is behind us. They want to make the case that anyone who's still focused on these questions is naive and dangerous. That strikes me as a harmful narrative to pitch and makes engagement much more difficult. There's one other critique I want to preempt, because they bring it up in the videos. They complain, folks like Lindsay and Bogosian, that when they engage with people like O'Fallon, or the guys from VeggieTales, for example, they get lots of abuse for not being critical of those people. I'll take them at their word, they get lots of abuse. Just like I can say, I, you know, uh, lots of folks get tons of, or, you know, just like I could say that I may get tons of abuse for this episode or that lots of other people in the SJW world get lots of abuse um, when they are retweeted by folks like James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian. Um, I'm not saying that these people have to be raging atheists all the time. But I do think if you're going to accrue social currency by partnering with people like sovereign nations, at some point you need to spend that currency to get them to stop tweeting about dangerous COVID cures or stop trying to take rights away from people. Maybe they're gently doing that behind the scenes, in which case, great. But absolutely 0% of it comes through in their public-facing personas. And from what folks have told me from behind the scenes at the convention— Everyone was in a, you know, was pretty good at not stepping on anyone else's toes while they all hated on their shared social justice enemies. In the videos, they all very carefully avoid ever even being a little bit critical of each other's views um, so they can maximize their synchronous benefit with zero friction. They always punt to, at some point down the road, you and I can have a debate about how we, you know, I think that you're ruining the world and you think that I'm ruining the world after we've protected our ability to have that debate. I think that that is disingenuous. In my opinion, that kind of transactional engagement is distasteful and probably actually not very effective. But people's mileage may vary. I haven't seen personally any shift in, in Fallon's positions towards any kind of liberalism, though I'd love to hear if such a shift has occurred. 
What I do see is him using these laundered ideas to attack social justice groups within Christianity, including liberation theology, with the goal of maintaining conservative control. It also seems disingenuous to me how much these folks talk about how they want to have room for discourse and make room for discourse when it's impossible to get any of them to engage. O'Fallon never responded to my requests. Lindsay has said no to offers to come on the show and to engage in other formats, usually with varying degrees of rudeness. Uh, I've even had mutual friends reach out to him to try to get an engagement going on uh, the most functional format available for these kinds of conversations that I'm currently aware of, which is LetterWiki, uh, to no avail. Um, a previous guest on this show who is works with these individuals, right, said, don't even bother trying to engage with Peter because he's so far radicalized that it's not really possible. These are the words of the folks who work with them, not their detractors. Now, to her credit, Helen Pluckrose agreed to a short letter exchange with me uh, and is probably, I think, the most reachable point of contact for folks who are interested in engaging with this material, um, though I want to recommend and emphasize be be maximally civil. Um, I'm also, right, I'm so I'm personally all for stroking on the value of civil discourse, but I think it is generally disingenuous to suggest as many of their fans on const- on Twitter constantly do, that these folks stand ready to engage with people that strongly disagree with them, and that the critical studies folks just refuse to show up and play. I am very much here and ready to engage. I, I understand, I think, you know, in, a, in as generous a way as possible, the antithesis that these folks are putting forward to the critical studies thesis. And I am here to try to make a th- synthesis with this anytime you like. So, in conclusion, I think Sovereign Nations is a Christian nationalist organization with a more than passing interest in defending white folks from criticism given that we, and from immigration. <laughs> given that we have like-minded Christian nationalists in the White House and appointed throughout our government, I'm far more worried about the influence of groups like Sovereign Nations than I am about the influence of comparably radical groups on the left. I believe that fueling sovereign nations' Christian grievance narrative with talk of grievance studies causes harm that is not counterbalanced by the likely fairly small number of folks who might adopt a slightly more positive view towards liberalism as a result, as long as they're still allowed to ban abortions. Sovereign nations doesn't seem interested in just preventing what it sees as future social justice overreach. It clearly wants to see rollbacks on a variety of issues where the left has made substantial progress in the last 80 years. When you look at how directly involved Lindsay and Bogosian have uh, have been with this group and the amount that O'Fallon draws on them in every format to try to make his case, it's impossible to ignore how much material aid they are providing to an illiberal and dangerously conspiratorial organization. I have to think there are better ways for the Grievance Studies folks to get their message out. Helping sovereign nations work towards Christian nationalism for little to no trade-off seems immoral to me. But I'll leave it up to y'all to decide for yourself if any of this really matters. I'm just happy that I have finally climbed back up out of this rabbit hole. Um, I thank you all so much for your support. Again, none of this research would have been possible without it. So I hope that you find it valuable. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. 
thanks to our $20 tier patrons. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existens makes my pussy throb. BlackNonBelievers.com, BlackNonBelievers.com, BlackNonBelievers.com. Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. Chad T. And thanks so much to our top tier patrons, the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon and Dave Maslish. Really, none of this would be possible without you. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. Most importantly, never forget, you are the void, and the void is you. (laughs) 